Hey everyone, this is True Crime at Lunchtime, hosted by Lindsay and Kayla. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kayla. And we're work besties who love true crime. And this is a true crime podcast providing shorter episodes that you can enjoy on your lunch break. Okay, Kayla, so I know that you're familiar with the case that I'm going to be doing because while a lot of these episodes are going to be one person does all the research and, you know, brings it to the table and then the other person is hearing it for the first time or isn't quite as familiar, this one's a little different because Kayla actually recommended this case to me to research because I think she knew that it would it would be one that I would... Um, like looking into. It's a very interesting case. When I rediscovered this case, I had heard it a long time ago. But when I saw it again, I was like, Lindsay needs to do this case. It cannot be me. It must be Lindsay that does this case. So I hope that I do the case justice. Justice. It's time to pop last night's dinner leftovers into your microwave and let's dig into the murder of Lauren Giddings. All right, Lindsay, so hit me with those three fast facts that I need to know before we get into this case. All right. The victim felt that something was off weeks prior to her murder. The case involves an infamous news interview, and the crime takes place in Georgia. Before we get into this case, I want to put out a disclaimer that it is very disturbing and involves some upsetting details, so listener discretion is advised. That's your warning. Get out now if you don't want to listen. When you think of beauty and brains, you would think of someone who is beautiful and smart. The case I'm about to share with you sounds very familiar. A successful, beautiful law student with blonde hair and her beloved purse-sized dog named Butterbean. As much as the victim in this case shares in common with fictional character Elle Woods, there is one thing that they do not have in common, a brutal, senseless murder. Lauren Giddings was born April 18, 1984, in Tacoma Park, Maryland, to Bill and Karen Giddings. She had two sisters, Caitlin and Sarah. She graduated high school in 2002 and moved to Georgia, where she completed her undergraduate degree in 2006. She briefly moved back to Washington, D.C. to work for a while, but went back to Georgia to start law school in 2008. So this case is a more recent one than what we normally do. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is important to remember when we're talking about some of the details because there's a lot of coverage on this. 2011, she was a recent graduate from Mercer University School of Law, where she was focusing on the upcoming bar exam with plans to pursue a career as a public defender after. It was just six weeks after her graduation date when she was studying to prepare for her big test in June that friends and family could not reach her by phone. I'll be honest, I could not handle the pressure of the bar exam. Well, and I think that's probably why at first her friends and family were like, oh, you know, she's probably locked away in her apartment studying because she did tell them like, hey, if you don't hear from me, it's because I am deep in the books. She's probably putting that phone on do not disturb. Absolutely. It was on June 30th when those closest to Lauren realized that no one had seen or heard from her in days. 
Friends used a spare key to enter her apartment that was located across from the law school. This is where a lot of the law students lived. When they entered, they found nothing that really seemed out of the ordinary, but they still proceeded to call police and investigators came out to take a look at everything. Those are some good friends. Yeah, I like how they acted pretty quickly. Um, You know, once everyone collectively realized like, hey, I haven't seen or talked to Lauren in a couple days, like let's let's act on it. Because you have to also keep in mind that her family was in Maryland, so they were at a significant distance away. So when investigators and police were called to the apartment, they started collecting evidence like fingerprints and giving the apartment a really thorough look. And it was in the bathroom that the case took a strange turn. When they sprayed the shower with luminol, which is a substance that under black light makes blood apparent. If you guys watch Forensic Files, they use luminol in like every single case. So that's why I'm like cracking up while she's saying this because I'm like, I know what that is. (laughs) I wasn't really that familiar with it. I didn't know that that was what it was called. I I didn't know they put something on it. I thought you just put it under a black light and you saw the stuff. So I thought that was really um, interesting to learn. But detective said that the shower glowed like a Christmas tree. No amount of bleach was getting rid of that. No. So after they realized something was wrong, they started taking a look at neighbors and questioning those who knew her and lived in the apartment complex. So it was at that point when they discovered an extremely foul smell coming from the trash cans that the detectives became very concerned. Oh, no. They opened up the cans and they found the source of the smell, a human torso in black trash bags. They couldn't know for sure that it was Lauren until an autopsy had been performed, but they did feel that it was pretty likely Lauren's body. It was at this point in the investigation that it shifted from being a missing persons case to a murder investigation. Due to the decomposition of the body, detectives estimated that she was murdered somewhere between June 25th and June 26th, just days prior. So you have to think in the sense of the timeline, she was found on the 30th and they believe that she had been dead about four or five days. When was it that they, her friends had called the police? They called that day on the 30th. So this was all taking place pretty quickly. Less than a week. Yeah. They first looked at who they believed to be the last person to see her alive, her ex-boyfriend, Joe. So her and her friends went out to a bar on Friday night on the 24th and she stayed the night at her ex-boyfriend's house. She left that morning and they're accounting that this is probably the last person to see her alive. But he told investigators that she had plans to go to a local country club. So they follow up on the lead. They go to the country club and she was spotted on camera at the pool ordering a drink. So they have a better time frame now to know that she was alive on the 25th. So the ex-boyfriend's in the clear. He's in the clear. She also has a current boyfriend. So they interviewed her current boyfriend, David, but he had an alibi. At the time of the murder, he was in California on a golf trip. So he was across the U.S. Yeah. 
And it's also important to note that Lauren was actually getting ready to move out of the apartment to move to Atlanta to live with her boyfriend and to be a public defender there. So they were getting ready to take this new step in life. So it's just really heartbreaking. Yeah, that's really sad. But David also told police that he received an email the night that she went missing that she felt that her apartment had been broken into and something was off. Oh, that gives me such the bad vibes. I know. And it's when I first read this, I felt that it was strange that she used email. But I read that her boyfriend was significantly older So this might have been his or her preferred method. And I feel like once you hit a certain age, you just want to communicate, however, in any means, like whether it be text, email, phone, it's all the same, really. I don't know. Yeah. Once you hit the workforce, it turns into email real quick. I agree. (laughs) So this piece of information gave detectives a new direction in the case. They started to look at who could have possibly gotten into her apartment And the first stop was the maintenance man. Autopsy reports came back showing that she was likely dismembered with a hacksaw. Mm, That makes my stomach turn. Yeah, this one really makes me sick at a lot of the details. But when they searched the maintenance room that only he had access to, they found a hacksaw with traces of blood. So they asked him, like, hey, you know, have you ever seen this hacksaw? Like, what's the deal? And he's like, very adamantly, he has never seen that specific hacksaw before. Sure, Jan. So let me rewind to June 30th, the day that the body was found. News reporters caught wind of the situation and the findings of the detectives. They were interviewing people around the neighborhood to see who knew what or if anyone had any idea what was going on. And At this point, they interviewed neighbor and fellow classmate Stephen McDaniel. I'm going to try to post the video of his interview on our social medias, but I'm actually going to play it for you now so that everyone can hear it. And no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time and came back? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I, were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies you might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean... We're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went, at, we went over, one of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss. But, I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it. So there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. What about um, in the, like, the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. 
that's why we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I, I think I need to sit down. Okay. So, Caleb, what did you think about that video? I have seen this video before, but it's a lot more cringeworthy than I remember it being. Some of the things he said are just so jarring that I'm a little thrown, like, a little taken off by it. Like when he said that she went running and was snatched in a professional news interview. And it's not like he didn't know he was being interviewed by the news station. Um, <laughs> something you just said reminded me of um, a news article that, or why do I keep saying a news article? Something you just said reminded me of a news interview that I saw about, you know, keeping it professional. Do you remember that video where that lady was talking about a snowstorm and she says that um, they're just going to eat and get all fat and sassy? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. I might take that out, but. You just unlocked the memory there. <laughs> it's also really jarring when he realizes that they said that they found a body like his facial he went white as a ghost yeah and said a body yeah so it was at this point that steven becomes a suspect when police see his odd behavior on camera they bring him in for questioning after he would not consent to a search of his apartment now keep in mind everyone else in the complex agreed but steven oh steven he pulls that classic thing where you try to get involved in the in the investigation. You try to act like you're a good friend. Talk about how great she was. And then you flub it on camera, if I'm being honest. Yeah, absolutely. During the first interview that they did with Steven, he did consent to a walkthrough of his apartment with him present. When they walked through, though, they noticed... Something strange. A large amount of condoms. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just have to laugh. Yeah. So I feel like this wouldn't really be necessarily an odd thing for a college student to have. However, earlier in the interview, he had told police that he was a virgin who was saving himself for marriage. So they're like, hey, Steven. Remember at the police station when you told us that you were saving yourself for marriage? Why do you have an exuberant amount of condoms? To his response was he admittedly burglarized multiple apartments in the complex to which they arrested him and now were able to do a more thorough search of the apartment. Oh, Steven. <laughs> Yeah. All over some condoms, you dug yourself into right. a hole. And, you know, he could have said anything else. He could have said, I bought those just to be prepared or uh, a friend gave those to me. But yeah. to admit to a crime. A crime within a crime is crimeception. Absolutely. They ended up finding some other odd things there. A collection of knives, swords, and guns. And a pair of women's underwear. So upon DNA testing, we're determined to be Lauren's. That's disgusting. Yeah. And how did he get them? I know. I mean, I think I kind of can figure out how he got them. Yeah. But still, that's disgusting, Steven. He's so gross. Ew, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. 
<laughs> Steven. It was Steven. <laughs> every time I every time I hear the word Steven, I think about Kristen Cavallari from Laguna Beach and just saying, Steven, Steven. <laughs> what a throwback that is. <laughs> They also found a master key to the building and a key to Lauren's apartment in Stephen's apartment. Why would you just leave them there? Well, that explains why he wouldn't want his apartment searched. If he thinks he's this great super sleuth that he's going to go away with this, he hides the body on premises. He's keeping the keys out in the open. He's putting himself at the scene of the crime. Because they also searched his computer and found Google searches for how to dismember a body and how to get away with murder. They also found that he was looking at Lauren's Facebook hundreds of times a day. And they also found a USB drive with all of Lauren's personal photos. What a freaking creep. Yeah, so he had really invaded so much of her privacy. So it's really starting to make more sense at this point why she felt like something was not right. Because something wasn't right, and it was Stephen. Yes. One of the most pertinent pieces of evidence that police found when combing through Stephen's apartment was the packaging for the hacksaw that was found with Lauren's blood on it. I don't want to say you're a dumbass, but that's a real dumbass move. I agree. At this point, they feel they have enough circumstantial evidence to arrest him for the murder of Lauren Giddings. They also recovered footage from a camera the night that she went missing that Stephen had recorded by taping a camera to a pole and holding it up to her window. It was felt that he had done this so that he could plan when he would go to her apartment and attack her. So gross. Yeah. I mean, her privacy was evaded so much during this time. Things were missing. He was breaking into her apartment. He was videotaping her. He was stalking her online. How did he get a damn key? That is a good question. So once they had recovered this footage and presented it to Stephen and his attorney, he confessed to murdering Lauren. So he confessed. Yeah, we got a confession here. I have the allocution, which is in Stephen's own words that I'm going to read, but please be aware that there is explicit language and graphic detail. On Sunday, June 26, 2011, around 4.30 a.m., I entered Lauren Giddings' apartment with a master key that I possessed. I was wearing gloves and a mask. I walked to her bedroom door. I stood there and observed her while sleeping. As I took another step, the floor creaked and she awoke. She sat up in her bed, saw me, said very calmly, get the fuck out. I leaped across the bed onto her and grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of the bed onto the floor and in her struggle to get away, she moved her legs and lower body under her bed, preventing her from getting away or kicking me. I kept my hands around her throat as she said, Stephen, please stop. I continued to strangle her until she stopped moving, and I remained that way, my hands around her throat for several minutes, possibly as long as 15. She did not move anymore. I dragged her into the bathroom and placed her into the bathtub and then returned to my apartment. 
I remained in my apartment, mostly on my computer, throughout the day on Sunday, June 26th. I returned to Lauren's apartment around midnight on Sunday to begin dismembering her body with the hacksaw that was later recovered from the laundry room maintenance closet. I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in several black trash bags separately, and discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpsters across the street from Barrister Hall Apartments. I cut up the mask, gloves, and my shirt and flushed them down the toilet. I wrapped her torso in black plastic trash bags and placed them in the green Barrister Hall trash cans on Tuesday, June 28th. Before daylight, I cleaned up her bathroom. I never used the refrigerator in her apartment. At no time before her death did I sexually accost her. At no point after her death did I perform any sexual act of any kind with respect to her remains. She was wearing the pink running shorts when she died, and I never removed them. They were found on her torso as I had left them. On Monday, I stayed home from bar prep class. Over the next several days, I rarely slept, used my computer extensively, yet still attended bar prep class on Tuesday and Wednesday. I joined the search party on Wednesday night into the early hours of Thursday morning, June 30th, still in a dreamlike delusion state in which I believed at this time while taking part in the search that Lauren was still alive and I had not done what I had done. Even searching the empty law school in delusion and hope that finding Lauren alive and well as if I had not really killed her. During the weeks leading up to my actions and days following after, as I look back on it now, I can only describe myself as divided in mind, unable to account for how I could have committed these horrible acts, and at the same time, also be able to carry on daily routines. It is difficult for me to explain that why I killed Lauren and attempts to conceal my deeds the way I did. The difficulty in explaining it lies in my own inability to understand it myself. I know that something in my makeup, my psychology, my neuropathy, and my own particular pathology perhaps must explain it, but it is beyond my reach. Lauren was my friend, and not a day goes by that I do not grieve over her death. I'm extremely sorry for what I have done to Lauren and her family. Words are not sufficient to take away their pain. If I could go back and take back what happened, I would do so. If I could restore Lauren to her family, I would. All I can say to Lauren's family and her many friends, I am very sorry. Signed, Stephen McDaniel, April 21st, 2014. This gets me heated. Let it out, sister. Put it in the burn book. I hate the way he says he's grieving. I understand it was your friend that passed away. But you did it. And it was so personal. When you strangle somebody, it it's not instant. It's not just like if you shoot somebody, it they're automatically dead most of the time. It's so personal. It takes several minutes to strangle somebody. And he sat there, watched her, and continued to do it. And she said his name. Like, she knew it was him. I hate that, too. I feel so terrible for her in those last moments of her life. And a lot of time I wonder if he's really being remorseful or if he's just doing it to like cut himself a deal. Because a lot of times that's how you get deals is if you're showing remorse for what you've done. So 
speaking of deals, the case never actually went to trial because he did plead guilty and took a plea in 2014 to erase the other things that he was up against, such as like the burglary. And they also found some child pornography on his computer. So um, he had agreed that if he took this plea and pleaded guilty, that um, the murder would be the only charge that he would face. He was sentenced to life in prison. Honestly, it's where he belongs. Yeah. That's that's fucking disgusting. He appealed his conviction in 2019 in attempts to prove that police who investigated him violated his rights. And he stated that they failed to advise him of those rights in a timely fashion, as well as, as, well as the manner of how the search of his residence was conducted. The appeal, fortunately, was denied and he remains in prison currently. Police reveal that he presented a lot of serial killer behaviors and believe that had he had not been caught, that Warren just would have been one of many. That's crazy. And I also just want to note that the rest of her remains were never found. They were never recovered. And I believe this is because Stephen had planned putting out those garbage bags based on the times that trash pickup was happening. So because of the search, it had delayed trash pickup that day. Had it not, they never would have found her torso. And they did look and search a lot for the rest of her remains and they were just never able to be recovered. And of course he won't say where they are. Yeah. And he told them, you know, like, Hey, I put them in this trash can, but they had already been taken to the landfill and they just unfortunately were not able to find them. It also heats me up that he decided he wanted to try to appeal his sentence and he felt that his rights were violated. How about the number of times that you violated Lauren's rights and made her feel unsafe in her own place? It's so devastating. This case particularly was so hard to research and there was so much research on it. I mean, there are so many clips of his interrogations with police. Have you seen any of those? I have seen his interrogations. And there's been several specials that have been done on this. There's just so much information about this case. I really think that because it did happen semi-recently, that, that that does attribute to there being so much to review on it. Especially that news footage. I think, I really think that the news footage is the thing that really solidified them to look into Steven in the first place. I hope he wasn't going for an Oscar performance because I was not buying what you were selling, Steven. He was wearing jorts. And a Billabong t-shirt. How 2000s of him. Yeah. And then he goes and sits down on the ground. And I'm sorry, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit because he's just, the acting is so bad that I almost find it comical. I do have one last question. What happened to Butterbean? Well, it is unfortunate 
that Butterbean was hit by a car and the injuries were life-threatening. So Butterbean and Lauren are together again. Oh, that just hit me right in the feels. I know. It's so sad. I was really hoping that, you know, the dog would have been able to provide years of comfort to this family. But yeah. She loved that dog so much. She and, did. She and loved If, if you look up pictures of her. And I'm going to post them. Her and Butterbean, they are the cutest duo ever. Yeah, they were the best of pals. And it's just a really sad ending to this story for both of them. And that is the murder of Lauren Giddings. Absolutely disgustingly devastating in every shape and form. This girl had such a bright future ahead of her and her life was so tragically cut short. We thank you guys for listening. I know this was a tough one to hear and we just want to continue to provide life to Lauren's story. So if you are feeling unsafe, it is really important that you report it to the police. If you feel like something's odd or doesn't feel right, it's never a lost cause to make a report. That's what the police are there for. Yeah. It's their job to keep you safe. Yes. So if you feel unsafe in any situation, let somebody know, but most importantly, let law enforcement know. Let us know what you think, guys. Want to hear your opinions on this case. Want to hear what you're thinking. Um, Want to hear your case suggestions. We want to hear what you would like for us to cover. Tell us how funny we are. And maybe give us a good review on wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd greatly appreciate it. And as always, friends, stay saucy.